BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, friends and neighbors. I hope you had a glorious 4th of July. And now, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, every Supreme Court expert that I have read, heard, or talked to personally agrees. They've never seen a session of any Supreme Court like the one that just concluded. There's never been anything like it in the number of important cases decided, the significant national impact of several cases decided, the political implications of major decisions, and the sudden shift of the court from center-right to extreme-right, especially on the issues of guns, abortion, and so-called religious liberty. Things were happening so big and so fast at the court, you know, it's hard for most of us to keep up with it all. But fortunately, there are those whose job it is to follow the court closely and keep us informed about what it all means. In my experience, nobody does a better job of tracking the Supreme Court than the nonpartisan progressive think tank, the Constitutional Accountability Center. Elizabeth Widra, the center's president, who's been all over television commenting on the court's blockbuster rulings, joins us today on our podcast. Elizabeth Widra, good to reconnect with you. Thanks so much for joining us on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, and I particularly want to thank you <laughs> for keeping track of all of these Supreme Court decisions so we don't have to. Oh know. my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> good to turn. So I want to I want to begin by reading to you um, the first line of the news account of Politico for the final day, the wrap-up of this session of the Supreme Court. Just one sentence. Quote, few Supreme Court terms in recent memory have remade American life and jurisprudence as thoroughly as the high court's assertive conservative majority did this year. Elizabeth, is that a fair summary? That is more than fair. And there are so many parts of that sentence that ring true. I mean, first of all, just the sheer scope Mm -hmm. of the change affected by the court this term, you know, in areas ranging from abortion rights, obviously, to religion on the public square, to the ability to combat climate change. You know, it has been really extraordinary what the court has done in terms of its results and also the way that it has reached those results. And I want to also point out part of that sentence. It said assertive. And I think that is, (laughs) you know, I, I might even go further to say aggressive. This is an aggressively conservative court. Um, you know, another shift that court watchers Mm -hmm. has, have observed is that in a lot of ways, it doesn't feel like the Roberts court anymore. You know, chief justice Roberts doesn't seem to have the control over the tone of the court that he used to. Um, and it's now, you know, you could say it's the Alito court or the Thomas court, but it's an even more aggressively conservative court than we've seen from the already conservative Roberts court. 
One, I remember a phrase uh, we used to hear a lot called legislating from the bench. <laughs> when you look at the scope of decisions from this court uh, and, and their uh, aggressive or assertive nature, um, it seems like they're determined to legislate from the bench, this, these six justices. You know, the decision that came out um, on the last day of the term, uh, West Virginia versus EPA, that deals Mm -hmm. with the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act. Um, You know, Justice Kagan in her dissent says, uh, a few years ago, I used the phrase, we're all textualists now. Well, Mm -hmm. I guess the majority isn't, except when it suits them. And, And that was exactly her point, was that, you know, previously... You'd had these conservatives talk about how important it was to follow the text of the statute or follow the Constitution as written and not, you know, quote unquote, legislate from the bench. Mm-hmm. But, you know, particularly in that case, they basically took it upon themselves to decide um, that it's not within the agency's expertise to regulate climate change and, and in a whole host of other cases as well. The court basically second gets second guesses guesses what Congress did or what the drafters of our Constitution did and the people who ratified it. Right. So uh, there have been so many important, uh, controversial, and consequential cases. Uh, But let's just talk about a few of them uh, in sequence, starting with the Mississippi case on abortion you alluded to. Um, Overall, what's the impact of that 6-3 decision as you see it? You know, the importance of that case is really just really unmeasurable. Um, although in many ways it can actually be measured, but um, you know the, the immediate impact, of course, is on millions of Americans whose lives will be upended. You know, people. There are really just heart wrenching reports of desperate people at abortion clinics getting the news that they will not be given abortion health care because of that ruling. So there is an immediate impact on real people's lives because of that ruling, taking away the right to abortion. And then, of course, there are the broader implications for millions of Americans who have shaped their lives around being able to make this decision for themselves. Yeah, for 50 years. For 50 years. You know, um, uh, Roe has been the law for my entire life. And not to say we a lot of us took these rights for granted, and I want to be clear that for many people, even with Roe in place, abortion rights were fairly illusory because of access issues and reproductive justice issues uh, that particularly impacted brown and black people across the country and people who had fewer means to access abortion care. But for many of us, we kind of took this right for granted, the idea that we'd always be able to make these decisions for ourselves. And to have that taken away without any uh, good reason Mm-hmm. And we can get into that in, mu- yeah. in more detail. You know, is is really just a, a shock. A lot of people are waking up to just how outrageous this six justice majority is in their aggressive conservative push of the law and American society. Well, in general, I mean, you are a legal scholar, constitutional scholar. When you look at the the the, the decision written by Samuel Alito, I mean. <laughs> Let's say if you were a law professor, how would you rate his legal reasoning to get to the decision that they all agreed on, six of them? It is it is an unquestionable giant red F for failure. Yeah. You know, the the way that the majority opinion written by Justice Alito 
looks at the 14th Amendment, gets the amendment completely wrong. The 14th Amendment was passed in the wake of the Civil War after we had passed the 13th Amendment abolishing chattel slavery, when the nation was grappling with the question of what does it mean to be free as a matter of law, and how can we protect that freedom and equality in the 14th Amendment? And they heard testimony, the drafters of the 14th Amendment, about the extraordinary, horrific, brutal denial of rights to enslaved people. And some of the most wrenching testimony dealt with the lack of bodily autonomy, particularly as it relates to reproductive choice, the ability of people to decide for themselves whether to have a child, to determine for themselves whether, with whom, and when to have a family. Those rights were brutally denied to enslaved people. And so the idea that you could make those decisions for yourself was part of the irreducible minimum of liberty that was protected in the 14th Amendment. That history is, of course, completely absent from Justice Alito's opinion. And instead, he looks to state practices at the time of the 14th Amendment in 1868 and around then that um, in some states, but not all, they get that wrong too, um, in some states, they did not make abortion legal. But the 14th Amendment was not intended to enshrine unjust and inequitable state practices forever. The 14th Amendment was intended to disrupt discriminatory state practices. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it was coming after we had half of the states um, enshrine slavery in their laws. So the 14th Amendment was not trying to, to enshrine forever these discriminatory state laws. So the idea that you would use what was happening at the time when there were discriminatory practices now is just madness. Right. As if that were right, what they were doing, right, Um, 200 years ago. And whatever happened to the phrase stare decisis, which uh, all of these justices, at least in their confirmation hearings, um, said was so important? Yes, exactly. So first and foremost, the right to abortion is rooted in the Constitution itself. And that's what we were just talking about with respect to the 14th Amendment. But even, even in addition to that, Roe versus Wade, which recognized that constitutional right, has been a workable precedent for 50 years. It has been reaffirmed time after time by the Supreme Court, including uh, more conservative courts as well. And so if you as a justice are going to overturn that precedent, you need to go through a very solid analysis talking about um, whether or not there have been any changes to the law or the facts. And as the dissent pointed out, there have been no changes in that regard, mm-hmm. other than the fact of who sits on the Supreme Court. Right. And change of composition of justices is not supposed to be the way in which stare decisis analysis works, but it appears that's exactly what happened now. Did these justices lie in their confirmation hearings? I don't know what they said in private to Susan Collins, you know, that's mm-hmm. on her yeah. conscience. Um, uh, but, you know, recognizing that Roe is a precedent is a fact. I would have liked to dug a little deeper on whether they understood that the Constitution protects the right to abortion. Because to me, as a student of the Constitution, as a scholar of history, if you don't know that it does, then you don't deserve to be on the Supreme Court. So I wish they would have pushed them more on that um, and not just let them get away with saying like, Roe has, is a case that's been decided because that's obviously true. What does it say to you that John Roberts admitted that he didn't want to go this far and he didn't think the court should go this far, but he voted with a majority anyway? 
Yeah, so he he wrote a concurring opinion that said, you know, I would not strike down Roe Ro and Casey. Yeah. I would simply uphold the Mississippi law. But, you know, it, in a way, that's just going in the same direction without being as transparent about where you're headed. You know, if if Roberts's concurrence had been the majority opinion, they still would have been gutting Roe and Casey. Um, they just honestly wouldn't yes, have been right. as transparent about what they were doing. And, and the Alito opinion leaves no doubt that, you know, they are going after not just abortion rights, but other incredibly important rights of liberty. And Justice Thomas's concurrence makes that clear, saying he wants the court to reconsider precedents that protect the right to contraception, that protect uh, the right to decide intimacy questions for yourself, and marriage equality. Uh, I I thought it was... <laughs> Uh, pretty apparent that Justice Thomas talked about same-sex marriage um, as one of the rights that should be also questioned. He didn't talk about interracial marriage. Hmm. Just want to point that out. <laughs> well, I mean, I think he he would probably say, well, uh, the Loving versus Virginia decision, which um, said that states cannot ban interracial marriage, was uh, in many ways an equal protection decision and not solely substantive due process. But I would point out that there are very strong equal protection arguments for abortion as well. And they're just pretending that those yeah. arguments aren't there when in fact they are. Is the answer for the Senate to codify Roe v. Wade? I think certainly it would be appropriate for Congress to do that. Um, you know, it's an important liberty and freedom and right of equality and bodily autonomy, that it is absolutely appropriate for Congress to use its enforcement powers under the Constitution to mm -hmm. enact such legislation. You know, and look, a lot of people will say, well, the Supreme Court might strike that down. They might. You should do it anyway. Right. Um, and uh, and the president uh, saying, to, uh, saying that he would certainly support uh, amending or the filibuster, filibuster uh, or dropping a filibuster for in order to codify Roe v. Wade. What else can the president do? I mean, a lot of people have been critical of Biden saying the, you know, the administration is not doing enough. What can they do? Well, I think, you know, obviously they've had some time to think about it. And I think perhaps uh, some of the frustration has been that they haven't stated particular concrete steps that they could take. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously it's important to ensure that they use whatever mechanisms they can in law and policy. Obviously working on legislative solutions is important and they can use their bully pulpit and their leverage uh, in that way. You know, thinking about what the Department of Justice can do, making sure that the right to travel interstate, the right to travel yeah. is also protected by the Constitution, working to make sure that that liberty is protected. Also with respect to medication abortion and the provision of abortion under um, uh, federal insurance schemes. You know, there are there are ways that, you know, I think that a lot of folks hoped they would be a little more concrete about. Well, one idea that's been, uh, that's, that we hear talked about is um, setting up abortion clinics inside of national parks or on federal lands somewhere. Um, do you see problems with that or is that an easy solution? You know, I think that, um, I, I assume that the federal government is looking at that and, you know, obviously if it's, um, uh, a 
federal land, then that's different from a state. Um, but, you know, obviously I, I would hope that they are looking at all the ways in which they can protect uh, a person's right to choose. So the other big decision that same week that got a lot of attention, of course, was the we're switching now to the New York decision related to guns and making it uh, easier for people to carry concealed weapons uh, in the state of New York. Again, let me ask you overall, uh, the impact of this decision, does it go beyond New York? So it certainly does. And you know, we talked about the assertive or the aggressive court. And here is a prime example of that. The court could have written its decision in a way that was much more focused on the particular New York law and the way that um, the New York law gave discretion about whether or not a, a concealed carry permit would issue. Um, there's a difference between so-called may-issue states versus shall-issue states. They could have narrowly written their opinion, but instead they... I mean, you could not have had a broader decision. They basically rewrote the way that courts have looked at gun violence prevention regulations um, over the past 10 years or so by making it this um, kind of bizarre, you know, is there a historical analog analysis that requires judges and justices to become amateur historians? and. Mm -hmm. Um, it was an extremely broad ruling that did not need to be that way, but clearly there was a hunger from the conservatives on the court to take up this issue of gun rights and um, write the broadest possible ruling that they could. So I'm not a, a, I'm not a lawyer, but help me understand how the court one day can say um, states can't be trusted to regulate when you can carry a gun. Uh, they don't have that right, right? Um, and then the very next day they say, oh, but states can be trusted to decide uh, when a woman can uh, make a decision regarding um, going, going forth with a, a forward with a pregnancy. I mean, there's a total, am I wrong in seeing a total contradiction in the court's reasoning well, I would also two say straight days. <laughs> I mean, there's also a huge contradiction in the fact that they think that states can take into account, um, you know, fetal life, but can't take into account the lives of gun violence victims. Yeah, um, excellent know, point. Right. I think what the what the conservative majority would say is that you know the Second Amendment is explicitly protects this. Well, this is definitely what they would say. The Second Amendment protects the right to have a gun, whereas the right to abortion is not in the constitution, but that's not really the way that constitutional interpretation <laughs> works. And also I would point out that even as they say that the second amendment is about a well-regulated militia, they are yeah. interpreting the individual right from that. So it's not as if the word individual is in the second amendment in the same way that the word abortion is not in the 14th amendment, but in both cases, you look beyond that, you know, you look to see what the words mean. You look to see what does equal protection mean? What does liberty mean? And so to say that one right gets to be supercharged, gun rights, whereas another right, the right to abortion, is overturned when really you're in, you know, there's no reason for treating one as more privileged than the other, other than that six justices think mm -hmm. it is, though. Uh, in other words, you would give Clarence Thomas an F also in his reasoning. You know, it's really um, it's really an extraordinary use of history 
to work a one-way one-way ratchet in support of gun rights that he's engaged in in that decision. You know, basically if you want to regulate guns, you have to find some historical analog that tells you you can. Now, of course, there are a lot of things that are used in modern gun violence that you're trying to prevent that weren't around at the time of the founding. (laughs) And so trying to do that basically hamstrings people who are trying to do something to stop this scourge of gun violence. So uh, just those two decisions alone (laughs) uh, made history and shook things up. And we're just getting started right. <laughs> in the decisions that came down in the last week or so. Let's look at some of those other ones from religious liberty to uh, uh, climate change and uh, immigration, uh, among others. Uh, we'll be back with Elizabeth Weidler here on the Bill Press Pod in just a moment. As you know, we like to give a shout out to progressive organizations we think are doing a good job fighting the good fight on several fronts. Well, on the legal and judicial front, nobody does a better job than the Constitutional Accountability Center. As stated, their mission is simply, quote, to preserve the rights and freedoms of all Americans and to protect the integrity of our judiciary. Now, that's definitely something worthy of our support. Check out the Constitutional Accountability Center at their website, the usconstitution.org. Again, that's the usconstitution.org and send them whatever help you can. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, here we're back. Uh, Elizabeth Weidra, who is the president of the Constitutional Accountabilities Accountability Center, joining us today on the Bill Press Pod. Religious liberty got a lot of attention from this court. It seems to be a pet peeve or pet project of John Roberts. A big decision regarding a football coach. How did that one play out, Elizabeth? Wow. Um, so we were talking a lot about how the court was basically pay- playing fast and loose with the law and 
history when it comes to the abortion, the guns cases. And in this case, it's not just playing fast and loose with the law and precedent, but as Justice Sotomayor pointed out in her dissent, there was a, a rather shocking kind of misrepresentation of the facts of this case. So mm. this case involved a high school football coach who wanted to pray in the middle of the football field and uh, the school did not allow that. And um, the court said that it violated his religious freedom. And in describing that case, they talked about it as a quiet, private um, um, invocation of God. Yeah. But Justice Sotomayor not only described why that was wrong, but she really took the picture is worth a thousand words. And I urge everyone to look at that um, because mm. you can see that there is this coach in the middle of the field with a large crowd of players huddled around him kneeling. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there are other instances where there were state legislatures who joined him on the field. Right. You know, this wasn't this silent private no. uh, moment with one's I God. And it was literally at the 50-yard line, right? As if they had to show off to the crowd, right? Yes. Were, yeah. And, and, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, striking the balance between respecting a person's religious free exercise and not violating the idea that um, public places and um, authorities shouldn't establish, that's the establishment clause of of the religion clause, shouldn't establish a particular religion. You look at the way in which, um, you know, particularly when we're dealing with students in the educational setting, the way students might feel coerced. And anyone who's played a team sport, you know, knows very well um, how one could feel pressured by this to participate in the prayer. You know, you want to make sure you get time on the field, yeah. um, that the coach likes you. And these are young folks who are, you know, impressionable. And uh, the court uh, just completely lacked any um, empathy or compassion or understanding of the way that could work in real life. It really is chipping away uh, this decision and the, another decision, uh, what was up in the state of Maine about religious schools being eligible for tuition grants, uh, yes. it's just chipping away at the separation of church and state, isn't it? Yeah. So um, I heard someone say say it really well. You know, basically we're looking at whether the establishment clause violates the free exercise clause of the Constitution, <laughs> which is kind of a nerdy constitutional way of saying it. But but the way that we you know used to look at these questions was again it was a balance between free exercise and when does that kind of cross over to you know, the school or the other government entity endorsing religion. And you didn't want to go that far. So, you you know, in striking that balance, you were very careful. Mm -hmm. um, but this court seems to be uh, very much okay with just bulldozing through a lot of those barriers that we thought the Establishment Clause erected against uh, religion in, in, in the government space. Uh, and the final two cases that were uh, – the decisions were announced uh, having to do uh, first with climate change and then with immigration and climate change. The court, as I read it, saying that the Environmental Protection Agency did not have the authority to regulate greenhouse gases from pollution sources. That's troubling in and of itself. But again, <laughs> this one, again, again, has implications beyond the EPA, correct? Absolutely. In some ways, the implications beyond the EPA are even more troubling than, than what happens here. So we have the court acknowledging that in previous cases, that the EPA has the authority to 
regulate greenhouse gases. And in this case, it was about how they can do so. But I will just point out that this case, it's really extraordinary that the court even decided this case because this case goes back to the Obama Clean Power Plan, which was Mm -hmm. never actually put into effect because Justice Scalia, and I think maybe his last official act on the court, joined with the majority to block it. So it never went into place. Hmm. Then the Trump administration put together its own rule. Mm -hmm. Then the Biden administration comes in and says, we're not going to do the Obama Clean Power Plan. We're obviously not going to do the Trump plan. We're going to come up with our own plan. But before they could even come up with their own plan, so there's no plan in place right now, the Supreme Court decided to take this case and basically limit future EPA regulation of carbon emissions from power plants. And the court said today, using this super questionable quote unquote, major questions doctrine that says that if if Congress wants to delegate major questions of economics or politi- or politics, then they need to expressly say it in the statute. Um, they can't just give that authority um, um, implicitly to an agency. Um, and that this counts as a major question. And that that has huge implications across the sphere of government action. Oh, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, that means almost... Uh, if that were applied, that could be applied to every federal agency and every Absolutely. department, correct? Absolutely. Across the board. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, what is a major question? Is it something that, in, in, and the dissent brought this up, you know, is this something that, is it a major question based on the abstract, you know, um, statement of what is being regulated? Or is it a major question, you know, is it about the um, consequences of the actual rule in practice. You know, this just basically allows the courts to create a lot of mischief when there's a regulation that they don't like. Uh, That one certainly uh, going against the Biden administration. The immigration decision seemed to be a win for the Biden administration. Tell us about that one. It definitely was. So the Biden administration had tried to rescind the Trump-era migrant protection protocols, as they were called, otherwise known as the Remain in Mexico policy that Mm -hmm. had created horrendous inhumane conditions at the border for people who were fleeing, in many cases, persecution and violence. And again, in many cases, seeking asylum in the United States, they were forced to remain in Mexico, even though they were non-Mexican nationals, while their immigration proceedings were underway in the United States. And here the court did 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 side with the Biden administration's rescission of that uh, of the MPP, and you know I, I do want to give them credit for reaching the right decision. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joined with the three other uh, more liberal justices, um, but really it was just not getting on the cr- train to Crazy Town. So I don't want to give them too much credit because <laughs> yeah. what what the lower court did here was was was. Not just say that the Biden administration couldn't do this. It required the Biden administration to implement the Trump policy to say that you have to implement with another uh, country's leadership. So also interfering with the diplomatic relations of the executive. And and that was really an extraordinary act. And, and the court appropriately recognize that. It had to be bad for Roberts and Kavanaugh to go, right? <laughs> to go against it. And now as if um what the court has decided is not bad enough news for the American people, um, there's a little I thought a troubling sign 
that the court has agreed to hear a redistricting case in North Carolina, uh, which is a question that's also being debated uh, in many states, particularly the red states, which would give state legislatures uh, the power um, to set the new redistricting lines and the power, in effect, to overturn um, the electoral count or their electoral right uh, electors from their state if they didn't like what they had decided. Yes. So this case that was um, just granted for the next term deals with the independent state legislature doctrine. And that's, you know, this kind of wonky doctrine Mm -hmm. that, yes, um, could have real negative implications for fair redistricting, but also could be used for election subversion in the 2024 election. And, And Trump tried and his people, John Eastman and others, tried to use it this year or this Absol- i mean sorry the last election yeah absolutely yeah you might remember that from such people <laughs> as john eastman and rudy giuliani um, and, and rudy others. giuliani yes when yeah. you know this coup in search of a legal theory definitely made a stop at the independent state legislature so why country. would the court get into this you know that is a really good question um Part of what is so concerning about this is that there isn't a circuit split. Usually when the Supreme Court weighs in, it's because there's a disagreement in the way that courts are handling a certain important legal issue. Here there is none. So it's really the court stepping in to take up an issue that um, it doesn't need to. And usually when this conservative majority court does that, it doesn't lead anywhere good. Mm-hmm. So when you look back uh, at this court, I, I was curious that you uh, asked the question yourself earlier, uh, whether this is any longer the Roberts court. It's, it seems not. Doesn't it seem more like the Thomas court or the maybe Alito court? Is that going too far? I don't think it's going too far. You know, we we can see this, I think, most clearly in the Dobbs case where you had Alito with the majority plainly striking down Rowan Casey, and Chief Justice Roberts, um, who would have upheld the Mississippi law, um, but not gone so far as mm-hmm. to say he's overturning Roe and Casey. And it's really a different, you know, I, I, I think they might all be going to the same place, but the way in which they get there has been different. And now we are clearly on the Alito-Thomas train and not on the Chief Justice Roberts incrementalist train. Right. Uh, there were those, particularly after the Dobbs decision, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren was one of them, uh, who said the court has lost all legitimacy. I think I'm quoting her correctly. Um, and it reminded me back to during the oral hearings on the Dobbs case where Justice Sotomayor and her questioning said the question is whether or not, if we do this, the court could survive the stench I'm paraphrasing here, of being seen as just a political body. Uh, Does the court have, did the court, has the court lost its credibility, lost its legitimacy? Uh, Can they survive the stench? What's your take? You know, I think it's very hard um, after this term where the court majority time and time again disregarded precedent without even much of a care in the world in doing so. You know, in the religion cases, this is, you know, kind of in the weeds, but there's this like long established case called the lemon test. And they were just like, that case is no longer good law. But like, they just said that. Um, They didn't go through an analysis. They were just like, eh. Um, You know, so there, for those of us who watch the court closely, I think the court's credibility took a huge hit in the way that it reached these decisions. 
that really just seem to be bulldozing through um, principles of law and uh, usual methodologies. And then for the public who, you know, is just trying to get through their daily lives and put food on the table and wrangle their families and, you know, survive, they know instinctively that to completely upend the way that most people understand and organize their lives and organize their lives' decisions, um, that's not right. And, you know, there is a real just lived experience that you cannot show up as an equal in the public square if you can't decide for yourself what to do with your own body, if you can't decide for yourself whether or not to have a child, you don't need to be a constitutional scholar to get that equality and freedom means that you must have that decision for yourself. And to have six people on the Supreme Court tell you that that's not the way it is, people know that's wrong. And to have not that the court should be driven by public opinion polls, but to have the court make decision after decision that contradicts what the vast majority of Americans believe, right? Um, right. And and yes, you're right. The court doesn't follow public opinion. They should follow the law. But what what I think is important here is that you know the Constitution and and our constitutional rights in our amended Constitution. You know, generations of activists have rewritten the Constitution to make it more inclusive and freer and fairer and more in line with our values. And, you know, these are simple principles. While they are very complex and, you know, action, but the the simple idea of equality and freedom and liberty, people have a sense of what that means. And they know that it doesn't mean that you need to ask permission from the government about whether or not to have a child. So to end on a bright note, we have a new Supreme Court justice, <laughs> Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Unfortunately, she will not change the math on the court, but this is a historic moment uh, to see her sworn on, on into the court. Uh, what do you expect from her tenure? What do you what do you think we'll see? Oh, I mean, her presence on the court is going to be incredibly powerful, e- even if, as you say, it might not change the math immediately. Um, first of all. Majorities change, you know. We yep. saw that yep. uh, unfortunately um, this past term. But you know, look, majorities change, and she will be there uh, when they do. And in the meantime, her voice will be incredibly powerful. You know, even just in the next term, when we look at cases that deal with racial equality, justice, equal citizenship. You know, having her voice on the court is going to be incredibly powerful, as it will be in every case, but I think especially in those cases when, you know, people across this country look and see a court that looks more like them. And she, look, her decisions, even if they are in dissent for a while, they will be speaking to history, they will be speaking to future majorities, and they will be speaking to the true meaning of the Constitution and pushing back against this false narrative that yes, because they can right now, they have the votes, is being put in place by the Supreme Court, but it doesn't make it right. Well, it's nice to have you there too, Elizabeth, to to join us to talk about the true meaning of the Constitution. Uh, We thank you again for the great work you do at the Constitutional Accountability Center. Uh, And thank you for joining us again today on the Bill Press Pod. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And that's a wrap for today's podcast with Elizabeth Wydra, president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. A big thanks to Elizabeth. 
And thanks to all of you for joining us. As you know, Congress is on vacation this week, so Capitol Hill is going to be quiet, but there will still be lots to talk about from Washington on our roundtable. We'll be back with a reporter's roundtable this Friday, July 8th. So in the meantime, take care of yourself. (laughs) Try to stay cool in all of this intense heat. And we'll see you on the roundtable, the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. 